0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you and welcome. If you like what you hear, then please hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, if you want to donate to this channel, there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to the corresponding page. A small monthly donation equal to a convenience store snack will help us to up our production value as well as allow us to do some new spinoffs on the channel. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, where we interact with all of you and talk about other things going on in the music world.
1: Now that that's out of the way, let's get into the real stuff. This week, Lucas, we are talking about a band that really is in a category of their own.
0: Yes. um, This band started off in a scene with like-minded musicians, but then they really left them in the dust. And the band that we're talking about this week is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Red Hot Chili Peppers! (laughs) Let's go. Uh, Yeah, uh, we're talking about a band that uh, Justin actually knows quite a bit about.
1: Growing up in the 90s, it's kind of hard not to miss the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And here's the thing you need to know about the Red Hot Chili Peppers is, especially in Asia, two of their songs were on constant replay, whether it's on MTV or really just any radio or any musically inclined station or tool like it, they were just everywhere and as we get into the songs later i'm sure you'll be able to guess which two songs were very popular
0: i i have an idea and i'll I'll see if i'm right later on um yeah red hot chili peppers really became one of the biggest bands of all time and definitely one of the biggest bands of the last 25 to 30 years They've really kept that um, rock and roll spirit alive, while at the same time incorporating all of these different elements of funk and rap and punk, and a lot of great pop songwriting. Like they just—they're really just themselves. They—they they exist in a category unto themselves.
1: Yeah, it's so funny when you listen to their music. I think some of the things that kind of stand out is their stuff's really simple. Like, I mean, it's a four-piece band for the most part. And they keep it pretty simple. And even honestly, like some of their really famous stuff, you could consider like very dry. Like there's not a lot of effects to it, it's not a lot of shine mm-hmm. to it. And it's just like music really kind of at its best.
0: Yeah. They're one of those bands that once you dig deeper into the music and what they're actually doing, you actually realize how complex it is. Um, but they do such a great job of taking these complex musical ideas and making them sound very simple. Because, yeah, they're not doing all of these, you know, really crazy things. But they're, when you break them down, they're actually not easy to play.
1: So, who are the Red Hot Chili Peppers?
0: So, there's really two constant members. There's two guys that have been there all the way through since the very beginning. And that's uh, Anthony Kiedis, who's the. Lead vocalist, as well as the main lyricist, and Flea, who is the bass player, probably the most of famous course. bass player of all time. Yes, like because you have other bass players that are that were also like the lead singer, and so they were known like you know Sting, Sting of course, or Geddy Lee, or you know Jack Bruce, Lemmy, but like Flea is not also the lead singer or the leader of the band. Like, he's just known for being the bass player. And I think in that sense, he's the most recognizable bass player of all time. For sure. Like, even people that don't know who they are or know much about music, they tend to know who Flea is. And he's just one of the greatest bass players to ever live. Just, I mean, a monster player.
1: I mean... When you think about the attitude and the, I want to say, grunge and alternative scene like musically, Flea really kind of, to me, really helps set like the standard for that.
0: Mm-hmm. His stage presence is yeah. such an important part of the band. And really, I kind of credit him, although he was definitely not the first to do, he was really the one to bring slap bass into rock and into like mainstream music yeah, outside sure. of the funk genre that it exclusively sat in or like jazz, which is what his background is in.
1: So one thing some people might not know about Red Hot Chili Peppers is that they've had quite a few drummers and guitarists.
0: Yes, they have. Um the starting lineup that they had included uh Jack Irons and Hillel Slovak, which I think I'm saying that That's name a cool correctly. Name. Yeah. Um, they were they were the first two members, although they did not play on the first album, but they would end up coming back to the band later on in their career. And then um, in 89 is when we got like the classic lineup, which is Chad Smith on drums, who mm-hmm. ever since he came on in 89, he's been with them ever since. He's with them now. Um, and he's... I would say he's become very famous lately for his uh, Will Ferrell drum battle yes. on... Uh, was it Jimmy Fallon or was it Jimmy Kimmel? I can't remember. I think it's it was Jimmy Fallon.
1: It was one of the Jimmys. My guess it would be Fallon, only because I like Fallon more than
0: Kimmel. Yeah, same here. Um, yeah, so I, there's, I feel like there's a lot of people that know Chad Smith from that, but he's an incredible drummer. And then you've got John Frusciante. Who I think is maybe the most important member of the band, at least to me. I would agree with that because I don't think it's coincidence that they continually write their best material when he's in the band. Yeah, and when for he sure. leaves, you have this noticeable dip in quality.
1: Yeah, I agree. He brings that pizzazz to it, and you know, for all the talk about Flea and Kiedis, like chantante really brings his own talent just as a musician to the band for sure.
0: he's the he's the learned musician of the group. He's yes. the one that's classically trained. He's the one that, you know, knows all of the jazz chords and really knows his theory inside and out. And so he just he brings this creativity, this out of the box thinking. Like the songs are always so interesting. like there's songs where his guitar parts are so weird. And so just, like, no one else is going to think to play this. But then at the same time, he knows how to create those melodic, smooth, soulful moments as well. Like, he's just, he's so well-rounded.
1: And I feel like he's really the main reason why I feel the Red Hot Chili Peppers have this underlying complexity to their music. Because Mm -hmm. he's the one who's really kind of, you know, changing the keys. Like, so many of their songs, like, they sound really simple, and then you look under the hood, per se... Like, you can find that, man, like, there's key changes, there's a ton of chord changes, and it's really not as simple as it sounds. Yeah,
0: I do absolutely think that Frushante is the one that brings that depth to their music. I think that without him, although I won't say that their recent two albums are lacking in originality or creativity, but although I don't think it's also as good. But, like, when you look at, like, say, the early albums before Frushante came, like, they're very straightforward, very just, you know, funk, aggressive, you know. I mean, yes, good, but not like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, a band that's going to be on top of the world. Right. And then you had that brief moment in the 90s where Frushante left the band, and the quality tanked, and they realized that they needed him back in the band. But we'll get to that here in a minute. But yeah, those are those are the essential ingredients. And I also wanted to briefly touch on uh, on Dave Navarro, which uh, he he's a famous guitar player in his own right. Do you know who Dave Navarro is? I don't actually. Um, have you ever seen the show L.A. Ink? Mm-hmm. He's like the he's the. Uh, I think it's cliche to say he's the tattooed guy on the tattoo show. <laughs> um but he's you know he's got the he's got the really cool beard and mustache and uh, Okay. And he was yeah. the guitarist for a very successful alternative band called Jane's Addiction. Oh. That's where he got his start. And yep. when Jane's Addiction broke up was about the time that Frushante left the band the first time. And so he jumped on just cuz you know he was a hot guitar player at the time.
1: Yeah, and it's the red hot chili peppers. Yeah. yeah. But Why they you want to do that.
0: Yeah. But they found very quickly that their backgrounds did not mesh well together. Because Navarro is not a funk player. And <laughs> he is not he's not anything close to Frushante. Not saying that he's a worse guitar player, but it's just it's it's apples and oranges the way that they play. And sometimes when you're trying to replace a band member that can work. Like look at AC DC. Like, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson vocally are so far apart from each other, yet that transition worked perfectly. In this case, it didn't. So, um, but I don't want to knock and say that Dave Navarro was a bad guitar player. The stuff he does on Jane's Addiction is incredible. And I am a diehard Jane's Addiction fan. We'll talk about them at some point. And we'll get into all the things that I love about Dave Navarro when we get there. But he was definitely not the right fit for the Chili Peppers.
1: So we talked about this already, but the four original members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they meet?
0: Yeah, they meet in high school. Wow. So it's just, you know, they. this is a, a band that started off as friends first. They weren't in the process of trying to put a band together. These were guys that already hung out with each other. They already were close friends and already considered themselves as brothers to each other.
1: Which kind of explains why two of them came back.
0: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first time that the Chili Peppers played, it was not meant to be an official thing because Slovak and Irons were already in a different band. And – um they invited Flea and Kiedis to come up to just do like this impromptu um, funk jam. And Kiedis just had like this poem that he had written called Out in L.A. And just was like rapping over it. You know, And this was a time in the early 80s when rap was like almost non-existent. It right. hadn't really stepped up. So this was kind of a still a new thing. And... The crowd just went crazy over it. They kept asking them, when are you going to do more? When are you going to do more? And so they're just like, well, let's let's write a couple more songs and, you know, we'll kind of keep coming up as guest spots on your band. And they really viewed the Red Hot Chili Peppers as, like, a side project. It wasn't the thing that they were putting all of their focus into. It was almost kind of like a novelty thing. Like, they were intentionally making their lyrics humorous and over-the-top and controversial, like they weren't trying to make it big with that style. It was just kind of uh this is fun and the crowd likes it. But, you know, the crowd ended up kind of overshadowing what the rest of the band was doing. And so they were just like, well, let's maybe give this a fair shot.
1: Yeah. So Jack Sherman and Cliff Martinez then come in.
0: Yes. And so this is uh, the lineup that plays the first record, which is self-titled Red Hot Chili Peppers. And um, they immediately were having trouble with their producer, who was trying to turn them into a hit singles band, Mm. and they did not want to be that. They just wanted to make the album their way, and they wanted to have, like, this really dirty-sounding production. They wanted everything to be really loose, to be really tongue-in-cheek, and... The producer was just like, no, it's got to be slick. It's got to, you know, this was like 1983, 84. Which would make sense. So, which also like surprised me how old the Red Hot Chili Peppers are. Yeah. Like, you know, my assumption was always that they started in the late 80s.
1: It's just funny that you said that because if they were trying to make an album in the early 80s and they wanted it to be what people would consider their style now it's easy to see why nobody would want to have into that
0: yeah I would say the thing that they were probably closest associated to was the underground hardcore punk movement yes because that was kind of where punk was after that first wave died off around 1980 was you had the hardcore scene that came around and and the chili peppers fit into that with the funk element thrown into there and so um, the album pretty much went unnoticed, but they were really making a name for themselves in the underground. Like you, they had the the very infamous, and I'm I'm not gonna say what the actual name of this uh, tour was because I'm trying I try to keep this a family friendly uh, channel, but it had something to do with uh, wearing socks somewhere that was not where you normally put socks (laughs) Um, they were pretty much completely naked and they uh, they covered up the 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 naughty bits with their socks awesome and it just look up the name if you are not offended by those things because it's actually really clever because it got them noticed the more you outrage people the more people are going to talk about you and when you really think about it in the context of the Chili Peppers,
1: like, it's so them, really. Yeah.
0: Flea continued to play naked many, many times after that and would very strategically place the base to where it was over the parts that he couldn't show. Um, but it was just, you know, that was that was who they are, especially in that early stage. They were very sex-driven they were very party driven, very drugs driven. Like Anthony Kiedis was saying, he was doing drugs at the age of thirteen, and so it was just like that was the world that they lived in. And if you look at like jazz and funk before them, like the drugs and those scenes were a lot more hardcore than they were in the rock and roll scene. Yeah, like everyone talks about how heroin is a um, is a jazz drug, and cocaine is a rock and roll drug, and of course both of them are bad. But it's like if there was one that you really wanted to stay away from, it was heroin. Heroin's just kind of like the the ultimate drug, as far as its potency, its addictiveness, and its potential to kill you. So then,
1: hello, Slovak comes back for this next album.
0: Yes, and so he he, he realized his band was not going anywhere and he saw that the Red Hot Chili Peppers, even though commercially they didn't do well, that their underground status was rising. And, you know, these were his friends and so I was just like, oh, I'll just join in. And uh, they made the second album, Freaky Styling. This was kind of like the true beginning of the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, career. They, Do you know who George Clinton is? Mm-hmm. They got him to produce this album, which was like a dream of theirs because, you know, he's he's the funk master. Right. If you're a funk musician, like, there's no better person to have in your sound than George Clinton. And so this was the album that they wanted to make the first time. And you can start to really hear a lot more of the, um, the direction that they were wanting to go with their music. And I also think Slovak's... Um, Inclusion was really important to that as well. Like, we always talk about Fruchante, but Slovak's contributions were very, very important on getting the Red Hot Chili Peppers to where they were in those early stages.
1: But him and Kiedis start battling heroin addiction.
0: Yeah. So that kind of was the the downside to this pairing up, was that they, they both engaged in this drug that was just completely destroying their lives. Um... Kidas would really battle heroin all the way up until 2000. He got clean tons of times and always ended up finding that he was relapsing. And it really affected the way that um, they were making their third album, which has one of the best names ever. The Uplift Mofo Party <laughs> Plan. I love that. Yeah. So Kidas was finding it really, really hard to write this record. Just kept going off on his own and doing heroin, and couldn't work, and realized that he had to change. And so he went and went in rehab, got clean, came back, record went a lot more smoothly once he was off of heroin, and, and ended up being the first album. There's a chart, but very soon after that, he relapsed, and you know the drug addiction got worse until um, Slovak passed away from an overdose in 1988. And that was a huge turning point for the band. Yeah, definitely. And It was a huge turning point in their music as well, because the first three albums are pure party records. Like, there's, there's not any ballads, there's not any self-introspective. Once he passes away, that's when you start to see Anthony Kiedis really start to examine all of the stuff that, is going on inside of him and how it's affecting him, and how, you know, it could have been him that died. And so Jack Irons also decided that, you know what, I don't want to be in a band where all my friends are dying because he thought that Ketus was on his way out too, because he was on the same thing. Yeah. And by the way, Slovak's um, death really spiraled Ketus down a dark hole of just using more and more and more until finally he was able to confront what had happened, was able to get clean for a short period of time again.
1: Which was just in time because Chad Smith and then Fruchante, they joined the band.
0: Yeah, it was actually in reverse order. They found Frushante first and the crazy thing was that Frushante was eighteen years old Man. when he joined the band. And he was a super fan. He was a a big follower of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was kind of like, you know, he got asked to be in the band that he was obsessed with. That's awesome. Which I always think that it's really interesting when that gets to happen because they can kind of really be the the symbol of the fan. Because it's like, you know, artists should sometimes make music just for themselves, but... I always think that you've got to have a bit of an eye for what your audience wants. And if you've got someone in the band that is part of that audience, I think that gives a good perspective. Yeah,
1: I think we saw that. I think we talked about that with Metallica with uh-huh. Trujillo.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so once they entered, that's when the classic lineup was secure. And from that point on, it was just, it was up. Mother's Milk came out in 89, and that ended up being a number 52 on the album charts, which was the best they'd ever done at that point. They had uh, that Stevie wonder cover of higher ground that mm-hmm. ended up being a huge hit for them. And you could tell that this was a transitional record. It still has all of that raucous party vibe of the first three, but that they were kind of starting to veer into interesting musical territories. You could tell that they had the right people in the band and then came blood sugar, sex magic.
1: What an
0: album. Oh, man. One of the defining albums of the 90s. Um, I don't know if you remember when we last talked about Mr. Rick Rubin. Of course. Who produced uh, Slayer's Rain and Blood. Uh, He came on to produce this record, and he really was the one that took the band to that next level because he was the one that got them to further out from their – their funk rock box that they were in, got them to experiment with other genres. This is the first time that really Anthony started to do a lot more singing as opposed to rapping um, and started to write songs that were more from his heart rather than just shocking sex party songs. Right. And I really think that he's the one that brought out that greatness in them. And of course... um, I feel like Frushante was just out of his mind good on this album.
1: And it all happens just in time because the time period that Blood Sugar, Sex, Magic comes out is like right when this grunge and introspective scene really starts to take hold of music.
0: Yes, the album came out at the perfect time. And it was just, this was the kind of the birth of alternative music, 1991 was. Um, All of these bands that had been simmering underneath the surface finally burst out and changed the entire musical landscape. I mean, 91 was a huge year for music. Just absolutely huge. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers are one of the most essential ingredients of that change. And so, that album made them one of the biggest bands in the world. And... Uh, that really took a toll on he, he was a v- He's a very odd person. Uh, if you've ever watched interviews with him, he's very out of the box thinker. I mean it's what made him such a brilliant musician, but he could not handle the fame that they had just acquired and just really distanced himself. He started getting into heroin and he quit the band. He quit the band like two hours before they did a show. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that made um, that made the rest of the band pretty angry. And so they convinced him to do that one show, but then they got someone to replace him for the rest of the tour.
1: And that person is Dave Navarro.
0: Yes. And like we were saying earlier, just it was not a great mix. It wasn't a compatible combination of styles and tastes and backgrounds, and I had never listened to the album that they made together before. I'd always heard it by reputation as it was a really bad record, and I have to agree. I listened to it. It's got, like, a couple songs, and I'm just like, oh, I would listen to these songs again, but a lot of it was just like, this is just boring. This is, it's not very focused, and it's just, it's missing the magic, and so... The band knew it pretty much from the beginning, but they tried to make it work. And this was when ketis relapsed again, got back on heroin, and um, really affected his songwriting as well. And they realized they needed Frusciante back. Flea made sure that he got into rehab and got him clean and was able to persuade him to come back to the band. And when he came back, they made Californication.
1: Which might be one of the most legendary albums of all time.
0: And it's the best-selling record they ever made. I want to say it was somewhere around 17 million copies sold, which is huge. It's incredible. Yeah. So they really, since that album's come out, they've really stayed at the top. There wasn't any more of this, you know, dip down into you know, subpar material. While, yes, their most recent material isn't incredible, it's still pretty good. And so, really, ever since then, they've been going from glory to glory.
1: All right, well, there you have it. That is the Red Hot Chili Peppers in a nutshell. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we are going to talk about the six songs that we've picked to represent the Chili Peppers. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. Today we are talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And today we've got six songs for you that we've picked that represent the band. But first, if you have never listened to us before, Lucas, why do we have six songs?
0: So this whole segment is to um, give us a bit of a deeper look into the band. We can talk about the history, but really... When we talk about the songs, this is kind of our chance to really show what we mean, why this band is important, why we're dedicating an episode to them. And also, these songs are going to um, give you, especially if you've never listened to the Red Hot Chili Peppers or you don't know really much by them, these six songs are going to give you a great first impression and a great overview of what this band is about. And also, I try and be strategic in crafting a set of songs that have this emotional flow from start to finish. I'm not just picking six random songs. I'm not picking the six best songs or the six most popular songs. I pick the songs that um, allow us to look more into the band, give you a great first impression, and create an interesting uh, experience from start to finish. So if you've never listened to these songs or if you haven't listened to them in a long time, After this episode is over, please go check them out. They're in a Spotify playlist. The link for that is in the description. Go check it out. Give the playlist a follow. Um, Even if you've heard these songs many, many times, hearing them in this order I think will add something new to your listening experience. So with that, let's get into our first song, Around the World. I know, I know for sure. Um, So when I originally put this song list together, I actually had a a different starting three. I originally was going to go the predictable route, which was Danny California, Snow, and Scar Tissue. And as I was listening through the list, it just didn't feel right. Even though those were the songs that made more sense to pick... It just wasn't satisfying me on that emotional level. And then when I reconfigured, it just felt a lot better, and I felt like it was the right decision to make. And Around the World, I think, is still an incredible opening shot for any Red Hot Chili Peppers set. You've got Flea's thundering bass coming in right off the top, and um, this is just a classic Chili Peppers song.
1: I think it really kind of highlights, too, where the Chili Peppers started from. Mm -hmm. Like, you have this really kind of hard rock, almost metal-like intro to this song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, based off of what we know about the Chili Peppers when they started, like, this seems like a very logical step from where they would have came from yeah
0: so this is the opening track off of the Californication record which is the first one with Furshante returning after his absence in the mid 90s and like that that guitar line of the banana those are the kinds of guitar lines that I think I hear and I go only Furshante would come up with a guitar line that sounds so weird And you would think that, like, oh, a kid could come up with that guitar line. But it's just the way he wrote it, the way he played it, it's somehow, it's like, it's those interesting little things that make him so vital to the band.
1: Now, this is also a song where I think you have to talk about Anthony Kiedis' vocals because they're just so unique. This song really kind of has this Red Hot Chili Peppers standard where it has this singing melodies mixed in with this rap style in the verses, which they made so famous.
0: Yeah, and it would actually be one of the last times that they would do this kind of songwriting, especially after Californication. They really abandoned the rap um, elements almost altogether. Right. And so I feel like this song is a best of both worlds because you've got the sound of what their early material was like, but then you've got the choruses to show that where they're going. And so I also think that putting this song first really allows you, on the first song, to see both sides of the Red Hot Chili Pepper coin. You're seeing both eras in one song.
1: Speaking of eras, that gets us into our next song because this next song is totally one era. Oh, yeah. And that song is Can't Stop.
0: Yes. So this is off of the 2002 record, by the way. And this was when they fully committed to their, um, their. you could put it in quotes and say mainstream sound, <laughs> but their mainstream sound is so good and just so well-written. Um, their approach to this album was that Frushante said that he wanted all of the riffs and lines that he wrote to be singable. That he didn't want them to be these kind of more atonal, um, dissonant sounds that he made a lot during the 90s. And kind of wanted to have something that was a bit more um, melodically satisfying, but at the same time still very original. The guitar line in Can't Stop is so good.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I love this long build intro. And... That guitar rhythm really is
0: kind of an iconic sound of the early 2000s. Yeah. You can definitely hear a lot of where alternative rock was at that time. And um, and then also, Anthony Kiedis is so good on this song.
1: Yeah, I feel like this song is kind of the perfect example of how the Chili Peppers used lyrics to establish musical rhythm rather than mm-hmm. actual music.
0: Yeah. You can tell that he writes the lyrics first, and that the lyrics are a very important part of the process. Because you have bands that write lyrics just because a song needs to have lyrics. And, like, if you look at Metallica, James Hetfield writes the vocal melodies first and then figures out words that fit into the rhythms that he's made. Kind of the words come later. And with Anthony Kiedis, the words come first, and he's going to, you know, create what he needs to create through the words and then translate that into music.
1: There's a question for you, Lucas, but do you know why Ketis always rapped in the beginning?
0: It's because he was not a skilled or confident vocalist. That's exactly right,
1: which is kind of an interesting thing to me because as we progress further on into this list, and as we'll talk a little bit more as we get into more to their music, but it's really funny how these first two songs we've talked a lot about how like this is kind of their their beginnings style because they were still kind of like finding who they were and Ketus for sure was still kind of finding who he was and it's really interesting to see how that eventually plays out later on. Mhm.
0: Yeah, and I think that the sequence of these songs is kind of showing um his growing confidence in his ability to sing. And I've just found in overall, when you have these singers in bands that start off with more of a non singing singing, like, you know, either these metal musicians that are shouting their lyrics or you've got, you know, um, people that are more like mouthing or rapping the words and they get more confident singing. That's what they want to do. Yeah, because it's it's more satisfying to be able to hit a great melodic um, passage than it is just to bark it.
1: And as we'll see later on, it matches perfectly in time with where music was going on in that time period. Mm-hmm. So this gets us into then what I think is the transition point for the Chili Peppers, at least musically, and that just begins with Stadium Arcadium.
0: Yes. So I, I loved the uh, transition of you've got the lyrics that are, the vocals that are by themselves at the end of Can't yeah. Stop and just kind of creates like this, you know, this moment to really do something interesting. And Stadium Arcadium is a really underrated song. It's, it's I, I would agree. say, the deepest cut on this set of six, even though it is a title track off of one of their most popular records. It was not one of the big hits off of it. But this is a beautiful song, and um, I just think that this song perfectly shows how great of a singer he had become at this point.
1: I agree. I think this I think this song really highlights his vocal versatility, like finally getting to a point where he's just like, oh, wait, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I can do it how I would do it and how not like I think I'm supposed to do it or how somebody would want me to do it but how I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah. And uh, and then just, I love the drum beat in this song. It's very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's just, it's not like a terribly complex drum beat, but it's one of those things you listen to and it's just like, okay, this is not a normal drum beat. And again, it just shows how they were so good at taking these interesting ideas and, and making it sound simple on a uh, shallow listen. Like, if you just have it all in the background, you're not thinking to yourself, whoa, wait, hold on, this is really weird. But when you actually pay attention to it, you kind of start to peel back the layers a little bit on what they're doing.
1: Speaking of which, that breakdown in the middle really highlights that. Yeah. Like, it has these toms going, and then this incredibly affected guitar solo from Frusciante.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, Frusciante, I would say, everything that he was doing led up to the Stadium Arcadium album. I think that you look at everything he does on that album guitar-wise, and it's kind of like the culmination of his work. And he's gone off to do solo projects. It was ended, This would be the last album for, you know, unless something were to happen here in the future that he will do with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I think that this album is kind of like his his masterpiece guitar-wise.
1: It's funny, we talked about earlier how this song is kind of a deeper cut but I feel like this song really, for me, encompasses, like, everything that the early 90s and 2000 music was. Mm-hmm. Just this slow, very introspective, teenage angst, California rock-like ballad. Yeah. <laughs> all in
0: one. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's very, you know, like, kind of being out in the middle of nowhere. Just kind of seeing the world just around you. And so it's all this openness. It's all of this... Um, all this potential and possibility around you. And I feel like that that song just really captures that mood.
1: And then we get into our fourth song, Give It Away.
0: Yes. Which is my favorite Red Hot Chili Peppers song. I feel
1: like maybe one of their most well-known songs.
0: Yeah. It was, it was the song that, that put them on the map. For sure. Um, it was the first single released off of Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And it gave them their first um, modern rock number one, and um, it was really the song that brought them to a mass audience and set them up for the more um, the more ballady songs that they would hit big with later.
1: I agree. I feel like this is where they this is where alternative became a real thing.
0: Yes, this song is just so cool. Like, all of the grooves are just really great. So much attitude in that bass. Yeah. Oh, the bass line in that verse just... is incredible. It kicks. It absolutely kicks. And so, I had a lot of fun with bridging... We have Stadium Arcadian that comes before this. And you have, like, this very meditative... And I kind of intentionally wanted to have something that all of a sudden just jars you into this other mood. And um, I really feel like that was an interesting combination to put there and so yeah I give it away this is like a song that when it comes on i turn it up full volume and i just like riot while i listen to it
1: i think the thing that i really love about this song is that it's very dry like mm-hmm. there's not you know we've talked about this earlier about the, the Red Hot Chili purpose how a lot of their songs really like especially a lot of their hits like there's not you know, a lot of polish, a lot of slickness, and this song is a perfect example of it. Like, it's very raw.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. And that was uh, intentional on the whole record to kind of create this, um, this very dry approach to how everything is mixed and how everything's recorded. And I really think it helps this song.
1: And again, looking back on it now... It really fit the time period that it came in. Like mm-hmm. it really was the perfect style, the perfect song for their, when it came.
0: Yeah, it had just enough of that edge, but there's just there's so many interesting things going on musically in this song. Like yeah. that 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 verse guitar line, the solos are really trippy and weird. Um, and then just I love Anthony Kiedis's delivery on this whole song. There's just it's got so much. Uh, punk attitude to it.
1: And then you really have to kind of talk about the music video for this. Yes. (laughs) Because (laughs) it's funny, at the time, I mean, MTV was around, but there was nothing like it on
0: MTV. If you were to, like, mute the music, you would think that this was, like, from a metal band. Exactly. Because it's like you've got these, like... Satan masks on and it's in this black and white and it's just its really disturbing looking but yet somehow it if you were to turn the music on and you'd be completely surprised by what you're hearing, you sit with it and it still like somehow pairs together.
1: I was reading about this music video about this song and, and how the Chili Peppers kind of came with this idea and Kiedis talks a little bit about how he said when they were thinking about making a music video, they had a lot of they went through a lot of directors, obviously, and they were just like, Everything looks the same, like it's all garbage, it's very slick, like it's very pretty, and there's like and then they found the guy that they who did this. I can't remember his name unfortunately, and it was just like, This guy is it because it was completely out of left field.
0: Yeah. Um, this was one of the videos I think that set the template for nineties music videos. Absolutely. Them That one and uh, Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit. Yes, where it's you've you've moved away from the glossy eighties video. Yeah, and now you're in the um, in the edgy nineties videos. Which is so funny because like the
1: nineties are in right now. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny to me how like nineties was really kind of especially art wise was really categorized by like stuff looking like pretty terrible. Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) And yet like somehow all
0: working together and I think they prefer the term raw. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lo-fi.
1: All right, this gets us into our next song Under the Bridge.
0: Under the Bridge was that song that, you know, like give it away kind of teed them up. Like it was it was a big hit for them. But I think that like give it away really set up Under the Bridge to be like their big, big song.
1: I agree. Especially just for that time period. I mean, all of a sudden, you have this really emotional song, and that's very introspective. I mean, it's talking about loneliness, despondency, and somehow this is the song that really gets them into the mainstream,
0: for sure. Yeah, and honestly... All the credit has to go to Rick Rubin on this one. Yeah, I have to agree with that because he was the one that saw this poem that Anthony had written and he never intended it to be a song because up to that point they'd never written a song that, that was that vulnerable mm. And he was one that was just like, you gotta write this. this is incredible. You need to make this a song And he was just and Anthony was just like, I don't know. I don't think the guys are gonna like it. This isn't normally like what we do and Rick was right. It this was the closest that they got to a number 1 billboard hit. Like they topped the the rock charts like I want to say 11 times, but as far as like the overall charts that includes everything, this reached number 2. Wow. And so and it was the best position they ever got with a song.
1: And in some ways I think this is like one of the very first alternative
0: ballads. Yes. A personal story with that. Um, my dad, like, I don't know if he still does, but he used to hate this song. <laughs> he, I I remember him telling me one time that he heard the chorus come in and the way he sings it. And he was just like, is he being for real? Like, just the way he goes, I don't ever want to feed. <laughs> I mean I mean it's great. I love it. And I it was and it, it was what the song needed but it's just I my dad is an 80s vocal guy. Yeah, I understand. And so when he heard that he said that he was just like he I I can't take this band seriously. But then my cousin Daniel said that when he heard that song it changed his life. Oh, I bet. Because he was, you know, 16, 15 at that time. And that's exactly what this song appeals to.
1: And I think that, you know, that kind of brings up a funny thing for me because it's just like, I think what I'm realizing about why Kiedis was so popular in his voice is because he really made anyone feel like, oh, well, I can sing this. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have to be this super operatic singer that, you know, we had in the 80s. Mm -hmm.
0: Or just, you know, how all of the pop divas sound. Exactly.
1: It, this was, and I think that's kind of the beauty about the '90s and the early 2000s. It's just like in the whole grunge alternative alternative scene, because it really was just like this very, like I mean, I don't want to say hodgepodge, because there was a lot of complexity and a lot of musical brilliance in in, in that time period. Mm-hmm. But there was this level of like familiarity and almost what's the word like. Almost, you felt like, oh, I could do this.
0: Yeah, you you got a lot of the most authentic sounding voices. I agree. A lot of voices that maybe on paper you wouldn't say would be a good rock voice, but they ended up being perfect. Like you look at, like, say, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, one of the weirdest sounding voices ever, but it's perfect for what they needed. Kurt Cobain. Yeah, exactly what they needed. Um, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Like, <laughs> like anyone else sings like that and it's you make fun of them but for some reason it just works with him
1: and for some reason like even now people just still latch on to that Mm -hmm. like it's so amazing to me how like when i again when i think about the 90s like it's not my favorite time period i mean i was born in the 90s so sure i have some i have some stock in it but when i really look back on it it's just like it was fine like it wasn't great, especially if you're somebody who values like you know high level production or something that sounds like really slick. But that's really again, that's not what the '90s were about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've I would say in the last year, maybe two years, I've finally kind of started to really love a lot of the '90s. And there's there's still stuff I don't like about it. Some pockets of music, um, but. I'm finding more and more 90s stuff that I'm just going, this is great, and I can't believe I didn't like this before. I
1: think one of the reasons why I've kind of gone back on it as well is I feel like as much as I listen to music first, the 90s and early 2000s really set a new standard for songwriting. Yeah. Like like never before.
0: It's, it's when songwriting got introspective, and it stopped singing about good times or just getting chicks all the time or you know singing about you know faraway places and or even just singing about your standard you know I love you oh you don't love me that breaks my heart it's right. kind of like actually looking at you as a person and going where have i failed in my life where are the places i'm struggling where do i want to be how do i want to be better and kind of looking at the at the darkness that's within.
1: And interestingly enough, it's easy to see where and how metal then eventually would settle into that gap mm-hmm. as well and take it further.
0: Oh, yeah. Metal went through so much change in the 90s. So much change. It's Yeah, it, it did the same thing. It, metal also got stripped. Instead of looking at the, the darkness that's in the world, they started looking at the darkness that's within ourselves.
1: Speaking of darkness, I think this song kind of speaks to that, and that comes to our last song, Californication.
0: Yes. This, to me, is the perfect ending for this set. Um, that that guitar bass interplay, the boo doo doo boom boo doo doo. I mean, this is
1: probably their most popular song, I think.
0: I would say it's a contender. I would say it, it contends with Under the Bridge. Yeah. Would this be the other uh, mega hit from... Always, man. I
1: can't tell you how many times I heard Californication. Like, it was on every radio station, and they would, like, literally play it, like, one right after the other. Of course, it was all over the malls, all over mm-hmm. the TVs. I mean, it was just everywhere. And, again, when it came out, I mean, it's it was the perfect song at the perfect time period... But again, it is talking about a very interesting topic because we talked a little bit about this darkness and mm-hmm. just like how this time period of the early 90s and 2000s started being very introspective and thinking a lot. And this song is really kind of talking about how like the dark side of like fame and Hollywood and all this glamour stuff, mm-hmm. which, of course, really hits on everything that was kind of happening at that point.
0: And I think it's a great flip of the script from everything that they had sung about up to that point. I agree. You look at all their early stuff and those are the things they're celebrating, the things that they're craving, the things that they want in life is the fame, the sex, the um, the money, the notoriety. And by the time Californication comes around, they're talking about all of the all of the 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 baggage that comes with it. And I think that really this song is in spirit, not obviously literally with the lyrics, but I think it's in spirit of what had happened to Freshante. Yeah. And I think about of someone that came into Hollywood looking for fame and fortune, gets it, and then realizes it's not at all what it's been sold to him as.
1: I think my favorite line in this song is, Space may be the final frontier but it's made in a Hollywood basement. Yes. It's so good. That is
0: good, yeah. Um I just think that this album in general and specifically on this song this was when they just they reached their maturity. Yeah. Um the the songwriting is good and I think it's when Anthony Kiedis was finally not afraid to really sing about what he felt. And he had taken steps in previous albums and that was another reason why One Hot Minute, which is their one with Dave Navarro, was just not good, is that the lyrics just took a step backwards as far as being open and being vulnerable.
1: I was going to say, I think this is probably their best written song. And maybe, honestly, in my opinion, their best produced song that they've ever done.
0: Yeah. Rick Rubin was still with them at this point and just continuing to guide that ship in such a great way.
1: Again, what's so crazy to me is, like, this song is not exactly a headbanger. No. But, again, like, keeping in context of where we are in the time period, like, this song still is, I mean, one of the most well-known songs of all time. Yeah. And it's not this, like, outrageous song. Like, it's very simple. It's very emotional, very heartfelt. And, like, people sing along with it all the time.
0: Yeah. Um, and I just, I think that I'm, I, if if you can tell, I love Frushante. I think he's my favorite member of the band. Um, the, like the, the weird way the guitar solo starts and the way he constructs the choruses and the verses, this is just a guitar masterpiece.
1: I agree. I think... Without him, I don't think this song would have been as musically interesting. Like, I feel like you would have gotten bored with it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, he really is the reason why this song is interesting at all.
0: Yeah. And I just think it really shows that, you know, he he was the, the secret sauce. He was the ingredient. You take it away, you lose that that thing that really makes something stand out.
1: Well, there you have it. Those are the six songs that we've picked to represent the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about our bonus song and then give you some final thoughts. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. As always, we've got a bonus song for you that goes along with the songs that we've picked. Now, if this is your first time listening with us, Lucas, can you explain what is a bonus song?
0: So this is the song that I pick to represent a more unestablished or well-known band, My opportunity to spotlight more unknown songs, or maybe bands that were one hit wonders, or bands that were big in the underground but never made it big. So, I like to use this time to be able to showcase those songs. And I always like for there to be some kind of connection between the bonus song and the featured artist, whether that be genre, or time period, or something to do with the history of the band. So, this is my chance to be able to give due to some of these songs that perhaps would not make it onto the main part of an episode.
1: All right, and that gets us into this week's bonus song, which Lucas is... Cult of Personality by Living Color. Come on. What a great, great song.
0: I love this song so much, and um, the reason that I picked this as the bonus song is they were really kind of in the a similar scene to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you've got this. Really? This would have been categorized as like alternative metal. That's interesting. Which had a really, really short lifespan for in like 89, 90, maybe 91. And then it kind of fizzled out.
1: I thought the reason you picked this song was because this song was also all over MTV when it came
0: out. Yes, it was. It absolutely was. There's a big old music video for this song. Um, but just kind of you know they have a lot of the the funk, yeah, um, tendencies in them, and they just had a bit of a different approach as far as like they had a much more metal sound than the Red Hot Chili Peppers did, yeah, for sure. Um, especially you know Vernon Reed, the guitar player, just absolutely shreds, destroys on this song, the th- the two solos that he plays, but you can. Here, this as another example of kind of, you know, the alternative aspect really trying to um, make its way into the mainstream.
1: I think what I love about this song is that this is what I think glam rock would sound like if it actually matured. Yes. Like, it's so fun. It's so interesting musically and lyrically. Like, there's so much attitude to it. Mm -hmm. And it's really different from anything else that was in the rock and roll scene at the time.
0: Yeah, and it's really a shame that... I mean, to say that this band didn't do anything else is not necessarily true. But none of their other songs ever got even close to the level of fame that this song got. I agree. And they're still around now. I think they released a new album like a year or maybe two years ago. But... They weren't able to replicate the success of this. And because of that, that's kind of why I merit why this would fit in a bonus song category. But this is like one of the best bonus songs I think I'll ever put on here.
1: Well, speaking of the alternative scene, as we talked about earlier, it just really produced a string of one-hit wonders.
0: Yes, it did. I mean, you got one-hit wonders with just about any genre that you have, but the alternative scene definitely did, especially when it got mainstream. Yeah. Because then it's, you know, they're trying to find anyone that even remotely sounds like what's big right now. And again, this song
1: is just a really great song.
0: Yes. I love the vocals on this
1: song. They're so well sung. I think I, I almost like everything about this song because I feel like... It's everything that I like about glam rock. Again, if it was just like if glam rock actually moved forward from where it was, in the yeah. Past.
0: Unfortunately, it would not.
1: And the ending on this song is
0: so good. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember I remember hearing this song on Guitar Hero the first time, and it being like one of my favorite songs to play. And then I got the song on iTunes and. Um, at that time, I was really starting to get into drumming, and this was like one of the first songs that I like. dissected all of the drum parts and tried to learn how to play it exactly mm. as it is on the record. Uh, Will Calhoun is their drummer, and I remember this song being a very big influence on me, drum-wise as well. So this song is pretty near and dear to my heart. Yeah.
1: I think something I just thought about, too, this song actually kind of reminds me of a Stevie Wonder track, like an old-school, 60s Stevie Wonder track, mm-hmm. if but modernized. Yeah. With a rock sound.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, just again, kind of marrying that that funk and metal uh, sensibility together. And one of the very few uh, all African-American hard rock heavy metal groups. Whoa.
1: That's true.
0: Yeah, you don't see that very often. No. Very, very rare. So that's another cool thing about the band. Well, that wraps it up for the bonus song. Uh, Justin, what are your final thoughts on this band?
1: So the Chili Peppers, for me, are one of the most influential bands, at least in my life, I would probably say. Like, I listened to them on and off for a long time, but every time I come back to them, it's just, like, it's so easy for me to remember, like, oh, man, this is why I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They have so much attitude, especially in their early stuff. Like, their early stuff is, to me, is just is awesome. And I think the biggest thing that I've always loved about them is that they were always so different from anything and everything else around them and they were unapologetically so
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think the other thing that really kind of stands out for me is that their willingness to transition and mature as, as artists especially for Kiedis to finally kind of not just accept like okay this is who I am and my own limitations but like this is what I can do and I can do it well Is such a huge thing. I think not like for so many artists like around the world. Just the fact that how the Red Hot Chili Peppers transitioned into this alternative we keep saying alternative, they really kind of pioneered alternative.
0: Yeah. They're one of the one of the founding members of the movement for sure. But
1: just like this really introspective, sad sounding, like California rock, teenage angst. Music. Mm-hmm. Like, there really hasn't been anything like that. But, you know, again, we talked about it earlier. They really opened the door for so many people coming into the music world. Like, we talked about this earlier in the break, but I remember the first time that I heard Cation, and everybody in my school, after we had all listened to it, immediately was like, I'm going to get into music now. Like, I can, I can start writing about music and about my sad life. Which, in hindsight, is kind of funny because nobody in my school had a sad life. Because I went to a private school and everybody was rich (laughs) and had a really great life. (laughs) But it's just still so funny that, I mean, just that power of what they were able to do and just the accessibility that they really provided and made people feel about the music, I think is, for me, I think one of the biggest things about the Chili Peppers.
0: Yeah. I didn't really get into the Chili Peppers until probably about three or four years ago. And it was uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic that kind of hooked me in. I had heard Songs of Theirs before. I had heard Give It Away before. I knew some stuff off of Stadium Arcadium. Um, But when I heard uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic in its entirety that first time, I remember that was the one that perked my... Attention! I was just like, okay, there's a lot of really cool stuff in here that I want to dissect. And then I listened to the Californication record and was just like, oh, this album is incredible. Finally listened all the way through Stadium Arcadium. And while that's album's a bit too long for my taste, there's so many great moments throughout that yeah, whole record. Yeah, for sure. Um, and really just becoming a fan. And the funny thing is, is that I'm a bassist and drummer. And the thing that... I came to love the most so much was the guitar playing. And so that's that's the that's the quality and and I just love Anthony Kiedis' voice in both eras. I love the yeah. attitude he has in the early era and the um just the uniqueness of his singing style in the later part as well.
1: I mean, I don't know how a lot of people feel about this, but I think he his voice is definitely one of the most iconic voices of all time. Like I yeah. would put him up there with Cobain um, honestly I think I would put him and Cobain like up together and then like I would put them both up with even some of the great operatic singers of the 80s and se- honestly even some of the 70s like rock just because like they really influenced so many people later on
0: Mm-hmm. great band glad that we were able to do an episode on them
1: so there you have it everybody that is the Red Hot Chili Peppers
0: Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, Just a big thank you again to everyone that is listening, um, helping us continue to grow the channel. If you check out in the description of the episode, there's a link to be able to donate to this channel. If you uh, just give a small little bit each month, we're going to be able to do some really cool stuff starting next year. And uh, please go check out our Facebook page, the uh, Good Music Facebook page. We have a lot of cool discussion going on in there. And um, please check out the Spotify playlist as well. There's a little link in the description there. And, of course, please uh, rate, subscribe, share, and continue to check out new episodes coming out every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Keep on listening to good music.